This episode of the Real-Time History Podcast is sponsored by Nebula. Subscribe to Nebula to listen to this podcast and watch all our Real-Time History videos earlier and ad-free. You also get access to exclusive historical deep-dive documentaries like our World War II series 16 Days in Berlin and Rhineland 45 on the dramatic and decisive final stage of the Second World War. Sign up for Nebula at nebula.tv slash Real-Time History Podcast for just $30 for an entire year and support this show. Hello everyone, this is Flo. And this is Jesse. And today we're here on or very close to our seventh anniversary, well the start of our seventh year of production for the Great War. And for the podcast, we have a very special guest today. I can tell you folks, I was stoked when Dr. Laura Engelstein from Yale University accepted my completely out of the blue invitation to come on the show and talk about the Russian Revolution and the Russian Civil War, because she is one of the most accomplished historians of Russia uh, that we have in the academic community. So it was a real, real treat uh, to talk to her, and I'm sure that you guys are going to love it as well. Yeah, I'm sure as well. Uh, I think uh, she provides some great insights in the interview into well, just how complicated the Russian Civil War is, we already knew that, but also how to try to um, see groups uh, like ethnic groups or social groups, not just as a, a monolithic entity, but as, an, as, an, as a group in which there are several interplays between things like uh, where they are brought up, social status, class. Uh, geographical location, time, uh, and so forth. And I think this is a very helpful breakdown to approach this topic. Um, before we show you the interview, um, just a quick... Um, before you will hear the, mag the... Before you will hear the interview through the editing magic, uh, we just want to say uh, thanks again to all the Patreons who sent in their questions to um, ask Dr. Engelstein. Um, if you want to ask questions to other world-known historians that we might have on the podcast in the future, you can do so if you become a Patreon on uh, patreon.com slash the Great War. Um, Patreon is the main tool that keeps the Great War alive. Uh, your support there is truly appreciated. We could not do this show. We couldn't do this podcast. We couldn't do the YouTube channel. We couldn't do anything without the support on Patreon. Um, YouTube ad revenue for history channel is not enough and uh, yeah in this going into the seventh year of our production we really appreciate if you could help us out there to uh, cover at least the rest of the Russian Civil War and uh, yeah without further ado here is Dr. Engelstein I'm very happy that we're joined today for the Great War podcast by Dr. Laura Engelstein, who is the Henry S. McNeil Professor Emerita of Russian History at Yale University. She is one of the leading historians of Russia in the world, I'm happy to say, and she's also, uh, which is the topic of our interview today, the author of Russia in Flames, War, Revolution, Civil War, 1914 to 1921, which was published uh, not too long ago, in 2018. So thank you very much, Dr. Engelstein, for joining us today. You're welcome. It's a pleasure. 
All right, so let's jump right into our questions, but let's start with kind of a general one uh, so we can ease into the complexities of the Civil War. Now, in your career, you've written a lot about Russian history and you've been interested in a lot of different topics, uh, social history, political history, it runs the gamut. Why did you decide to write Russia in Flames and what was your objective with this book? Okay, so most of my work has focused uh, before Russia in Flames on the end of the old regime, the last decades of the 19th century, the beginning of the 20th century, um, the revolution of 1905, cultural history. But I did at the beginning of my career write on the 1905 revolution as a social movement. Um, and so I, and, but I'm not a one, a one note Johnny. I have gone from this to that there, connected in various ways in terms of the development of civic culture in the old regime. But in, as 19, as 2017 started to approach, an editor I knew at Oxford University Press in New York said, you know, it, um, it's about time to have a new English language general history of 1917 for the educated a reader who's not afraid of difficulty, but not for your academic colleagues. Would you be interested? And I thought I was kind of in a transition in my work. I'd been working on the First World War. And I said, very interesting idea. And he said, well, try to make this, try to figure out how to shape it for this kind of a reader, an inter the history buff, intellectually more or less sophisticated, knows something, but not everything. So I, my target reader was my brother. He reads political history, he reads biographies, he's a smart guy, he knows more than I know. I thought, Larry's going to be my reader. Okay, so then, very interesting, I had not written a conventional narrative history really since the first book. The others were more analytic and essayistic and so on. What do they need to know? Who do they need to know about? It has to be a political story. It has to have a narrative. It has to tell what happened in some way. But at the same time, a narrative that has ideas and problems and addresses a lot of the issues or some of the issues that have come up in the historiography over the intervening years. And also, there are good, some good English language narratives of 1917, um, but not really since the end of communism, when the field really changed in terms of sources and thinking and so on. Um, there, another... Russian historian also was writing a centenary history. My colleague Steve Smith at Oxford were very good friends and colleagues. We talked a lot back and forth. We wrote different kinds of histories with different beginning and end points. And I think we'll come to these uh, questions a little later. But I got here sort of serendipitously in a way. But on the other hand, it's the end of a story I've been telling and thinking about, uh, not the end, but a transition. I'm not a Soviet specialist, but the dynamics of 1917, and then it turned out the Civil War. It was not originally a, an invitation to cover the whole thing, but I thought, you know, you really can't stop in October 1917. You have, the revolution is not over. Some people argue it's not over until 1928 or whenever, but certainly the configuration of 1917 through 21, could argue exactly when, makes a whole, a narrative whole, an uh, interpretive whole. Okay, yeah, I, I mean, I can certainly sympathize with that feeling of, of being sucked along by the, uh, by the Civil War. Um, it's, it's 
it's got long tentacles when you when you get into the topic. Um, so let's jump into our viewer questions. And these were submitted by uh, viewers of the channel when we told them that you were going to be joining us. And the first one is on the topic of ethnic minorities. And uh, there are just a few examples thrown out like Tatars or Volga Germans or others. Um, and the question is, who did they tend to support in the civil war or were there differences between them, I suppose is uh, another angle. And what role did the promises of autonomy that were made particularly by the Bolsheviks, but some were made by the whites as well, play in that uh, dynamic of these smaller ethnic groups, not Slavic great Russians? Well, the whole question of ethnic minorities looms very large. And one of the reasons my book ended up being so long <laughs> too long in a way, is there were many subsidiary revolutions that combined and inter-influenced each other to make up the entire revolution, Russian revolution. So if you just tell the political story from the center, which many people have, uh, St. Petersburg, uh, Petrograd, and Moscow, it's very important, but it doesn't really explain the whole dynamic that's going on. And what I found very interesting is to see the patterns that replicated themselves across the empire. You know, in the old days, we said Russian Empire, but we didn't take empire seriously. Since the Soviet Union broke apart into ethnic uh, subcategories, parts, nations, um, historians, as well as the public, became much more attuned to the ethnic differences inside the old empire and inside the Soviet Union, right? So this question of ethnic minorities, the, the reader asked some interesting, he had an interest, or she they had an interesting list of, of categories, but the Ukrainians thought of themselves as an ethnic minority. Poland, uh, Poles thought of themselves as an ethnic minority. So some of these are products of conquest. Most of them were actually. The Baltics were conquered in the 19th century. So Poland was the late 18th century, what had been the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, 18th century. Ukraine was not, was it joined, that's a whole touching subject of how the Ukrainian part of the Russian Empire ended up under Russian rule. But by this time, the Ukrainians are thinking of themselves as a nationality. And then you have the very complicated Caucasus with many, many, many small ethnic communities. You have Central Asia, again, with many more, many ethnic slash religious communities who are necessarily not living together very well in different ways. And what happens across the board is you get a demand for autonomy, whether it's regional, even in Siberia, where there are not necessarily ethnic uh, minorities but regional autonomy, a revolt against the central control of the bureaucracy of the old regime. Right? So first, even in, during the First World War, they stopped saying, we want more autonomy. Then the provisional government after 19 February, we want more autonomy inside Russia. Then the Bolsheviks take over, and politics intersects with this kind of sense of autonomy. The Bolsheviks say right away, we believe in the principle of self-determination of nations. What does that mean? Right? So different ethnic each ethnic group, so to speak, had its own intelligentsia, its own class of educated people, linked together by the common experience of the old empire. So they're not living on different planets. They're mostly speaking Russian, if not the first, second language, and so on. They have this same political experience. They all lived through the First World War as part of the Russian empire. So many of them, they want, they actually, most of them support the provisional government first, and then the constituent assembly, the idea of a representative government for 
some kind of new Russian federation. And as things keep evolving, their positions keep evolving. Most of them are anti-Bolshevik, right? Because the Bolsheviks begin to represent the center. They have a problem with the white movement, which also wants to reconstitute the integrity of the Russian empire. The Poles obviously are anti-Bolshevik. They're anti-center. They want to reconstitute what they think of as the old Polish nation, although they have very different ideas about what that nation would be now, right? The Ukrainians never were a nation. There wasn't even a province of Ukraine in the old empire. The first political border of something called Ukraine was created by the Soviet Union after the conquest of Ukraine in the Civil War, uh, which is ironic. It creates the infrastructure of what later became today independent Ukraine. Ukraine tries to be independent in 1918 in the Civil War and fails, partly military conquest. And also what you ask, what is the relationship of the Ukrainians to the Bolsheviks? Some Ukrainians were pro-Bolsheviks. Um, There were differences of political opinion, but the leadership of the Ukrainian independent movement was a combination of socialist and nationalist, and therefore anti-Bolshevik. Then the story gets really complicated, but I think that's a fair enough assessment. Um, When it comes to Tatars, complicated. Uh, Some of them are liberal, want autonomy, want representation. Then there are also very serious conflicts among the nationalities, very unattractive, unpretty to look at. Um, uh, the Armenians want to have an, their own state that crosses borders in conflict with the Ottoman Empire um, and conflict with neighboring Muslim communities. A lot of violence and um, military struggle, armed struggle, I should say, happens among, horizontally, among competing groups in the old empire. So there is no simple answer to this question. Um, mostly what Bolshevik stands for, for people representing uh, these minority, uh, subjugated minorities, is the center, is a central state. And insofar as they want autonomy or even independence, then they're anti-Bolshevik. There's also, there are also ideological differences. Georgia, for example, really interesting. The Mensheviks dominated. The Mensheviks are the, I hope you're Listeners will know the part of the social democratic movement, which was very strongly anti-Bolshevik throughout the revolution, very pro-democratic, but still socialist. The Menshevik, the Georgian Mensheviks were anti-Bolshevik, but also they didn't want independence. They thought of themselves as still belonging to a democratic federative Russia, beyond the point where that was really a realistic option. So in that sense, ideological. Well, the, the answer, unfortunately, is not simple. Yeah, I think I, I I think complicated is definitely the watchword for for much of of what happens in the civil war. But I, I remember vividly uh, we used a quote in a previous episode about the Caucasus region of a Georgian Menshevik who who kind of was just aghast at how adrift he was uh, in that situation, wanting to be a part of a of a Russian polity and and the whole thing falling apart. Um, okay, our next question is about the peasant uprisings. And it's about the peasant uprisings and ideology. Were they moved by ideological aims rather than by sort of specific, you know, local practical grievances like grain requisition or uh, conscription? And given that 
you know, peasants are not known for writing long and detailed memoirs of what they were thinking, since most were illiterate, how can historians get at the answers to these questions? So ideology, and um, I think you mentioned uh, the work by um, Eric Wolf on peasant wars yeah. in the 20th century. So the question for historians of popular movements, not just peasants, also workers, but peasants in particular is, do they care about the slogans? Is this what's moving them? Or are they just unhappy about um, being poor, uh, being hungry, um, not running their own affairs, having to put up with officials from whatever particular government has to be there they're resisting? Are they just angry about the military draft um, and, and therefore they rebel? Um, so um, there's a tendency to dismiss, of course, the, the political leaders such as the Bolsheviks, dismiss them as bandits, as mindless, as anarchistic, and so on. And conservative historians tend to say histor uh, peasants, Marx said, peasants were sacks of potatoes. They were apolitical. They could never organize. They could never understand their political interests, right? Conservative historians agree with Karl Marx. <laughs> they say, you know, the masses are just angry. They don't really have political vision. But look at the record from the Russian Civil War and from other, from 1905 revolution, from the 1917 revolution. Um, peasants have a, what, what uh, E.P. Thompson called a moral economy. They have a sense of right and wrong, of fairness. And they have, a, they have a cultural ethos. Not all of it is pretty because a lot of the conflicts in peasant villages were resolved by violence among themselves and so on. They were very patriarchal, they were hierarchical but they were also collective. So there is a culture in the peasantry that um, sort of shapes their response to situations of crisis. Um, that being said, um, the peasants in the Russian Revolution, there were uh, layers of the peasantry in the Russian Revolution who interacted with the broader world. So there were peasant unions and peasant congresses. They, in, they Who did they respond to? Village school teachers to activists from the social, social revolutionary, socialist revolutionary party, which had a platform endorsing peasant ownership of land, autonomy of the village. And these activists were um, ubiquitous enough to bring their message to a local level. And these slogans, even if they were not uh, attached to organizations organized by outsiders, had enormous influence. So some of these local leaders who are thrown up from the peasantry, who organize rebellions, or just articulate interests of peasants. They're using the language of the socialist revolutionaries. So some of this uh, about ownership or the fairness of requisitioning and so on. Is this meaningful? You can, how do you know, right? You're right, they don't leave written records. So there are different kinds of evidence for one thing. One kind of evidence is what did they do? The historian has records of what peasants did. What kind of um, organizations did they generate? What kind of armies or, or out, armed outfits? What kind of leaders? What did the leaders say? How many people were involved? What kind of violence did they perpetrate? So some of this is a kind of hieroglyphics of meaning. This is how they express their meaning. Also, other people at the time were interested in what they were doing. So. The Cheka, the, the Bolsheviks, for one thing, instituted this Cheka, which is a political police, right away. They didn't wait for the Civil War. December 1917. You could say it was implicit, but okay. They are going around, just like the army did, the Imperial Army in the First World War, asking people, 
surveying what's going on, what are they thinking, what's happening on the locality. So there, there's that. Then also, once they were rebellions, they get arrested, the leaders, and then they take their positions and they arrest the local people in the, in the, aside from shooting them and trying to stop them, they also arrest them. They interview them. They have records. And one of the most fascinating things about the whole revolution and civil war, people were writing things down as they went along. There was hardly a bureaucracy. The state was in collapse. And yet there was documentation. There were surveys or whatever scraps of paper they had lying around. They kept minutes of meetings and then they saved them. Now, I'm not going to answer exactly why this is true. It's partly a mentality of thinking yourself as really in power, as creating institutions. It's partly a military mentality. The armies are famous for collecting information because they have to know how to act. And in some sense, this is part of what I call in the book a war against the peasantry, against the countryside. They need to know what's going on. So there are tricks that historians can use to try to figure out um, what the peasants are thinking. They sign proclamations. Now, do they sign them? Do they know what's in them? Many of them can't read, but there's a whole culture also of reading out loud. And we know from the First World War, for example, that villages knew what was going on. For one thing, drafts. So the order comes down to draft people. Everyone knows about that. He knows why, they know why it's happening. They have reactions to it. So this combination of, I wouldn't call it ideology. It's not a fully formed thought system. And whether even workers had a fully formed thought system is another question as well. But it's a kind of culture. It's a kind of system of values and expectations uh, that operate in the peasantry. And I think it's a, the other thing is these, or, these rebellions were not random. They had a certain, they had inner coherence. They had their, you don't want to call them institutions, but they were organized. So I think, although there was a lot of crime, a lot of random violence, a lot of real brutality, it's a mistake to dismiss these popular movements of the revolution and civil war as, as mindless. Um, they were not, they had purposes. They had their own purposes. And there are a lot of examples of this in Central Asia, the Basmachi had their, had their, um, inner organization growing out of their culture. Um, these local so-called bandits, they're always called bandits by people who don't like them, especially the Bolsheviks, you know. Um, they were not crazy. They knew they were being uh, oppressed by requisitions of the draft and so on. A lot of the rebellions start with military draft, starting way back in 1916 during the First World War in Central Asia. So these are recognizable dynamics. Um, and if you read Eric Wolf, you see that some of them translate across the cultures, the dynamic of peasants resisting the state, resisting the imposition of the city and so on. Yeah, I mean, I, I find the peasants fascinating, like the, these ideas of, you know, rootless intellectuals, like these uh, getting together with the sacks of potatoes to sort of turn the wheels of history and so on. It's There's all sorts of uh, stuff to unpack there. And the next question from uh, another one of our viewers is, why is there such a strong connection between anti-Semitism and anti-Bolshevik sentiments? The basic point being, anti-Semitism is a way of thinking about the world that's very deeply embedded in Russian culture, not because it's some emotional reflex of peasants, but because the regime relies on anti-Semitism there are anti-Semitic organizations. When revolution happens, anti-Semitism becomes a powerful counter 
ideology to combat revolution. So a lot of pogroms are associated with the 1905 revolution. And during World War I, it was officially xenophobic propaganda, specifically anti-Semitic propaganda. The Jews were traitors, the Jews were cowards, and so on. So um, there is a way of associating the idea of the Jew with the enemy. So if you are a movement like the white movement, which also inherited the culture of the old regime, the white movement worked not for reestablishing monarchy in particular, but for reestablishing empire. And their commanders of the Russian army was notoriously anti-Semitic, and they used anti-Semitism, and you could say in a sense as an as a inspiration, as an instigation. Who are the enemy? They're the Bolsheviks. Who are the Bolsheviks? They are Jews, and Jews is recognizable. Um, so the problem in Ukraine, the leadership of the Ukraine, uh, Fitura, Stimon Fitura was a socialist. He was not an anti-Semite. He, he issued proclamations denouncing it. But everyone around him, and not everyone, but many of his commanders and sub-commanders, the leaders of these, um, these paramilitary organizations, we might want to be sympathetic to them in some senses. They represent autonomy and so on. On the other hand, they were viciously anti-Semitic. They, they had slogans, beat the Jews, the Jews, uh, beat the Jews, save Russia, or the Jew is the enemy, and so on. Um, and Pitlura had no success in stopping this, actually. His name became associated with pogroms, with attacks on Jews. Anti-Semitism was built into Polish nationalism. Roman Mowski, his National Democratic Party, from before World War I, from 1912, he wasn't ashamed of it. The Jews are the enemies of Poland. They don't belong here. They are alien. We should get rid of them. They're, we don't like them. So, and most of the pogroms occurred on the territory of the former Pale of Settlement and the former Kingdom of Poland, which is to say the place where the vast majority of Jews in the Russian Empire were forced to reside and resided. So where there were fewer Jews in Siberia, there were not many pogroms, but the ideology of anti-Semitism was there. So why is it associated with Bolshevism? In Europe, also, the threat of communism gets associated with the Jews. The threat of revolutionary activity in the 19th century was associated with the Jews by the imperial regime. Okay? Then when in the Civil War, the opponents of Bolshevism have a tendency to say, this is the enemy. Okay, they're Jews. Here's a paradox. The Bolsheviks were not anti-Semitic. They rejected anti-Semitism. They were internationalists. But the Red Army also committed pogroms. This was not something that Soviet-era historians were allowed to discuss. And how did that happen? Partly, it's the same peasant population joining all the armies, and they have the same mindset, the same experience, the same prejudices, so to speak. Um, and partly because Soviet ideology emphasizes the class enemy. Who is the class enemy? The bourgeoisie? The speculator? the profiteer, right? These are categories which overlap with the categories of the Jew. So the Jew is, represents a city, represents commerce. And Lenin said, you know, remember, not all Jews are bourgeois, but symbolically, it was very easy to think that you're attacking a bourgeois or a speculator. And in fact, the person you're attacking is Jewish. So there's a, it was very hard to disentangle these two things. And of course, Isaac Babel's famous stories and diary uh, documenting the behavior of the Red Cossacks um, in attacking Jewish settlements. Um, now, some of these men in the army may have been part of the Russian imperial um, campaign in Galicia, 
which was uh, part of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth under Austrian rule during the First World War, they were brutal in attacking the Jewish population. So there's a lot of precedent, there's a lot of habit, there's a lot of you know, instinctive response that makes anti-Semitism a powerful instrument uh, in the hands of leaders. And I don't like to say that anti-Semitism is so deeply ingrained in the culture of the Russian peasant. I like to say that anti-Semitism, when we discuss it in this sense, you can be prejudiced, you can not like Jews, but this is a political problem. This is a mobilization of a certain way of thinking about the world that it's a populist demagogic instrument. Um, and I think that's a more useful way of thinking about it, particularly in this conjuncture. That's a long-winded answer to your question. <laughs> uh, no, but it's it's a it's an important question. It's one that a lot of our viewers are very interested in um, because it is a complex a complex question. Um, now, maybe we shift a little bit um, to the question of pogroms. So there's this. There's this kind of anti-Semitic ideology, but then it also gets, of course, acted out on the ground in, in violence by different groups, sometimes pursuing different aims. Uh, how do we try to make sense of that? How did that uh, dynamic uh, play out on the ground? Um, one of the things that surprised me about in writing this book was how important the Jewish question was. I did not anticipate that at all. Um, and uh, it was... It was just woven in um, to uh, the whole fabric of the conflict. So one of the important things it struck me is there's been a lot of recent uh, scholarship on the First World War and its aftermath. And the main notion being that, first of all, there was a lot of attention to the so-called atrocities. So this is where accusations uh, thrown back and forth between the belligerent powers in Western Europe and, of course, in relation to the Russian army as well. And then the second part of the new scholarship on the First World War is that the violence didn't stop. So there's November 1918, of course, in Russia, it's both earlier and later <laughs> when, the, when the war stops, um, but that the violence flows over. And this kind of paramilitary violence, um, the culture of violence is not uh, persists afterward. Of course, part of this is the historiography of the origins of the national socialism in Germany and the radicalization of, of violence and paramilitary and so on after the war. But in Russia, this what is an atrocity? An atrocity is a situation in which troops come into a civilian it's a village or something, and they fear that they are under attack. So this was connected with sharpshooters, so that someone is going to be shooting at you from the rooftop and you have to be prepared. You don't know who's an enemy or not. They're not wearing uniforms. They're concealed. You are, are in danger. They are the aggressors. And so then they shoot up the village or they attack the civilians. And that's an atrocity because you're not supposed to do that, right? They're not combatants. The same exact scenario describes a pogrom. The mob goes in. Um, it feels like the Jews are the aggressor. They're attacking us. So first in the First World War, they are traitors. So any Jew could possibly be an enemy, even though they look like ordinary people. Although, in fact, they look like Jews in the pale, where they look different. In other places, they don't look different, and that's also a problem. <laughs> How do you know? Um, so um, this habit, this scenario, gets replicated in relationship to the Jews during the Civil War. So this kind of violence has a particular choreography, a particular profile to it um, that... Um, 
happen. And then you have a situation in which there is no central authority. Um, so there's no control. In this sense, there is a kind of anarchy, but it's a kind of organized anarchy. It's a choreographed anarchy in which certain patterns are happening, but no one is in a position to stop them. And so the target in the areas of the Pale and the old Polish um, former, well, the Kingdom of Poland under Russian rule, uh, were particularly severe. The Polish, the aspiring Polish government in 19, the Poles, of course, uh, win their war against the Bolsheviks. But before they win the war, that was, doesn't happen until 1920, 1919 is the Paris Peace Conference. And the Poles are busy, representative of the Polish government, are busy arguing to the Western powers, no, 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 we didn't commit pogroms, pogroms were not being committed on, on Polish soil and so on. But there is a lot of documentation. People were sent at the time to investigate. Jews organized their own investigations. There's an enormous amount of information. And this is important to remember. Starting with 1905, starting with the turn of the century, educated Jews who didn't live in these little shtetlach, these little towns in this area, were very concerned about the situation of the Jews. And they were Jewish philanthropic organizations. They were international Jewish organizations. People were sent to the ground. They took records. They had, I've seen them. They had these questionnaire forms going to villages. Who was, who was injured? Who was murdered? Who was who? Where did they live? Um, who did it? And so on. They collected data, testimony, and so on. And they kept it. They kept an archive of it. Also, the government said that. The early Soviet government did that. So there's a lot of information. Of course, it's statistically not perfect. Okay. And publications at the time, a lot of it very partisan, arguing one way or the other who's responsible and so on. Um, but the violence against the Jews is part of this, um, in a sense, a war against society. Uh, a, one of the vectors of class resentment, the resentment of the countryside against the city, of nationalist movements looking for the enemy. In the case of Ukrainian um, nationalism, it was the Poles and the Jews. Russian nationalism, it was Germans and the Jews. Um, somehow the Jews are always <laughs> are always there. And one of the rationale for that, uh, you can say it's a rationale, I don't know if it's really a reason, is Jews are on all sides of the borders. Uh, they speak this funny language, which sounds German. Uh, they speak lots of languages. Who are they really loyal to? Um, uh, they are traders. They are smugglers. Uh, they are exactly, we force them to live in this area right on the border. Now we accuse them of being are disloyal because they live on the border and so on. Poles were also distrusted from the Russian center um, because they also fought for different, well, the Jews did not fight. The Jews fought for different armies insofar as they were drafted by the countries that they lived in. What's distinctive about the Jews in this situation and interesting is there was no Jewish army. The Jews were not, the Jews sometimes took up guns to defend themselves against attack. But there was no Jewish claim for territorial uh, rights. There was no Jewish armed force in the name of the Jews of, involved in, in the Civil War. Um, Jews fought, joined an army insofar as some Jews did, the Red Army, partly because the Red Army took them in, allowed them to occupy positions of authority and power. And in that sense, the Jews were associated uh, with the Red Army, um, most notably the Commissar of War, Leon Trotsky, who was the poster child of anti-Semites, uh, the 
Jew empowered the incarnation of Bolshevism and so on. Um, but the question, what is the question is, um, why do they occur? Why so many different groups? And one of the questions I've answers I've already mentioned is it's the same people to some extent in these various different armed forces, outfits, the same peasants and so on, the same. But I have to say also the typical pattern of the pogrom before 1917, it's not peasants. It's workers from the cities who move into the countryside, railroad workers, unemployed workers, the, the original pogroms of, 19, of 1881 and also the pogroms of 1905. Um, actually are not an exclusively peasant phenomenon. Peasants join in, but they don't initiate. And what happens in the, in the, in the course of World War I is troops are then involved in committing pogroms, which had not been the case earlier. And insofar as armies are involved in pogroms in the Civil War, these armies are peasant armies. And in that sense, the peasants are more predominant in the production of pogroms. So there's a difference uh, now, this, this is a new school of this part of the school of discussing of scholarship on the post-World War I violence tends to argue that violence has its own dynamic. It's irres irrespective of ideology. That's not what's driving people. Anti-Semitism is not the cause of pogroms. Uh, Anti-Bolshevism is not the cause of peasant rebellions. It seems to me that's going too far. I think it's a very narrow definition of what it means to be motivated by ideas or, or uh, value systems. I think it's more a cultural thing, but it also is a coherent way of thinking or seeing the world. And anti-Semitism was very powerful as an available way of organizing the meaning of what is going on. Okay. Um, let's try one more. Um, let's switch topics a little bit and jump to the Red Army, uh, because this is obviously a key institution in, in everything that's going on. And you write in the book that it's not only a fighting force, but it's a social formation that ends up uh, being a part of restructuring society. So can you tell us a little bit about, about how that worked? How does a, a military force end up also becoming an institution that restructures the society from the ground up, so to speak? Well, I first want to say it's not my original idea. Many of these ideas are not original, but um, yeah. So here we come back to this question of violence. It's out there spreading. The, the Reds need to build, the Bolsheviks are in the business of reconstituting the state. They were, Lenin in particular, the Bolsheviks were absolutely um, focused and committed and talented institution builders. We think of them as destructive. They were very destructive, but they were also putting things, they were, their, their vision, their goal was to recreate a government, a state, a society on a new basis. But that means institution building. They may be different institutions. So one thing, they, the, the challenge in front of them is you have all this um, social violence, which has its own inner structure, but it's not under the control of the leadership. They need it. They can't do without it. But they have to control it. So part of what's going on in the creation of the Chica, the political police, the creation of the Red Army, is to rein in, to channel, to corral, to appropriate, to redirect, uh, to discipline what is out there. They need it, but they need it to be under control. This is very Leninist. But the person who actually 
was the brain the really brains behind this was Trotsky as a commissar of war. And how do you do this? Partly uh, they didn't do it. <laughs> Partly they have a core. They inherited part of the old imperial army, so some percentage, I can't remember any other percentage. Most, most of the officer corps went over to the whites, but there was a, a quite a considerable number who stayed with the Bolsheviks. And partly not so surprising because the officer corps had been decimated and a lot of them were newcomers who had risen up. They weren't necessarily the old upper class officers. So they stay. So they have some expertise. They have the general staff, a considerable portion of that, just like they inherited a lot of the bureaucracy. Yeah. So just to make a long story short, the idea of the army, first of all, at some point, there's a, there's a, uh, there's various scourges they're fighting against. One is desertion. Um, and desertion takes many forms and not showing up at all, or running away and so on, to create some kind of stability and going from one side to the other, you never really. And one of the problems of this kind of revolutionary paranoia, who is the enemy, is that people were unstable. They were really going back and forth. And this idea of consolidating your base, of making clear who was in them. And to some extent, the vocabulary did the job. The kulak, the deserter, the profiteer. Didn't really matter if they were. But the idea there were firm categories for which you organize the world. There's an us versus them, a very Leninist way of approaching things. So you can say, okay, they're ideological, but they also perform it. They, they perform a function. They help people. They try to put some stability into the social map. The other thing is, so desertion, and then what partisanstina, which is partisan warfare, which is these paramilitary units on which everyone relied. So Kolchak, Pitura, uh, Antonov Fatsienka in Ukraine, the Bolshevik commander of the Red Army in Ukraine. They couldn't do without them. Um, and they knew that they were horrendous, that they were anti-Semitic, that they were brutal and violent. But they were organized and they had a charismatic leader and they annexed them. They also went back and forth from one side to the other and sometimes did damage to the cause and so on. And at some point, Trotsky says, um, we need what he called revolutionary discipline. It's a contradiction in terms because what happened in 1917 was the army rebelled. They said, we don't want, you know, no, no death penalty, no officers, no epaulets, no hierarchy, no insignia and so on. So how do you bring it again, the genie back into the bottle? So you have to diverge from the old, uh, depart from the old model, but you have to reinstate it basically. And there was resistance to this and Trotsky's gift was somehow to make this happen. So first of all, you need to create this core institution. And then how is it the core of a new society? The Soviet society, this new society, was born in warfare. And the ideology of class warfare is not just a metaphor. It's a real thing. And it became you know, military warfare in, in the Civil War. So the army is people are recruited. They're fed. They're given, they're, they're harangued. They're propagandized, they're given motivation. Um, so they become the sort of the shock troops of not just the revolution, but the revolution transitioning into being a new society. And so, uh, you know, other scholars have written that there's a militaristic added uh, foundation, war communism, instant transition to communism through the abolition of the marketplace, through requisition to the use of coercion. So in a sense, you know, we don't have time to convince everybody. They have to do what we want them to do. The Bolsheviks are not the first, one has to say. The, provision, the Tsarist regime used force to requisition the grain. The provisional government tried to use force to requisition, coercion in any sense, to requisition the grain. The Bolsheviks requisitioned the grain to feed the same army that's made out of the same peasants who are growing the grain, who are then imposed upon to, to relinquish the grain. These are very difficult 
impossible situations in which, at the end of the day, the vast majority of the peasants suffer terribly. But so this the reason this Red Army is has so many is multifunctional in this period, along with the bureaucracy. It is the backbone of the creation of a new regime and then ultimately a new society. So the ethos, the the values that are instilled into the Red Army soldiers or attempted to be instilled into the Red Army soldiers uh, become, you know, the leitmotifs of the, of the new society, which from the beginning had hierarchy built into it in, a, you know, an ideology of egalitarianism, but a reality of discipline and hierarchy and punishment and coercion. So you have, you know, Red Army and Chekhov's Chekhov first, Red Army second, as arms of the state. And there's a famous saying by Max Weber, the German sociologist, that a state is defined by its monopoly on the legitimate use of force. Right. This saying was, co- was coined in 1919 as Weber was studying the ongoing Russian civil war and quoting Leon Trotsky, who said every government is based on force. And Weber is trying to make sense of what's going on. And of course, the great mission of, the, of any state, who any party to the conflict who wanted to end up running a state was to have a monopoly, have an institution through which it can monopolize and use the legitimate, the use of legitimate force. I think that's the exact, um, uh, so you have to delegitimize some forms of violence and with the imprint of legitimacy, your own, on uh, other forms of violence. And that's the trick, so to speak, of the Red Army in the Russian Civil War. All right. The peasant in the Red Army uniform is a revolutionary, and the peasant who is not is a bandit. Yeah. It's... Well, some of those bandits are temporarily helping us out <laughs> until they <laughs> manage to get control. <laughs> but we don't call them bandits. <laughs> it's just like everyone, when asked about pogroms, Petrua said, no, no. You, you know, not our guys. It's it's a lump in prolet. It's the the riffraff or the criminal or the Bolsheviks and the Bolsheviks say no, no, not our guys. It's those Ukrainian bandits and so on. So it's always you know someone else is the one who's who's the bad guy and we are the ones who have a have a better rationale for what we're doing. Yeah. All right. I want to thank you very much, uh, Dr. Engelstein, for spending time with us today and for your uh, in-depth answers to all sorts of questions. It's not an easy topic to summarize uh, in a a podcast like this one, but we appreciate it. And for all of our listeners out there who now have their interest peaked even more than before and who want to get their hands on Russia in flames, uh, how's the best way for them to do that? So I want to just say that probably... The simplest in our day and age is to click on Amazon. But I would urge everyone to go to their local bookstore. We have wonderful local bookstores in Chicago. They will, you can still put in an order. They will mail to you to your house um, and you will keep them alive so that when we get out from under this miserable corona business, we will still have a cultural institutions that we care about and love. You can also go straight to Oxford University Press Probably Amazon is cheaper, but then they charge you for mailing or whatever. But in principle, right now, I think philosophically, order through your local bookstore. <laughs> they will get it for you. And thank right. you for buying it. I, I second that motion. Local bookstores uh, are the way to go. All right. And thank, thank you very you much. For the invitation. A pleasure.